and welcome to the Antifada. Only it's not the Antifada this week. What? What's going on? Um, this week, we decided to do a little uh, a pilot episode for me and Aaron's new project. Working title, Everybody Loves Communism. And which they, which they definitely should. And they do. They just might not realize it yet and put it out in the Antifada feed. So this is a very special thing you're witnessing right now. Uh, me and uh, Aaron Thorpe, a.k.a. Posada's Trap God, a.k.a. Thaddeus Stevens. He has, uh, he's a man <laughs> of many names. You may know him from the Trailbilly Workers Party. Blah, blah. Trail, Trailbilly Workers Party. You may know him from <laughs> A Time of Monsters. And you may know him now from Everybody Loves Communism, the brand new podcast from Jamie Peck and Aaron Thorpe. What's up, man? What's up, Jamie? I'm excited to be embarking on this project with you. Uh, you know, like, I think a lot of people are, um, I mean, a lot of people, young people especially, not just young people, but people coming into activism and organizing since, like, the uprising of, like, you know, uh, last summer and the Bernie campaign. Like, people are interested in, like, you know, communist socialist literature. And it can be uh, really intimidating to uh, to get into it. And uh, I think, uh, like, you know, neither of us are experts, but I think we're well-versed enough to be able to talk about this stuff at an introductory level for people that uh, kind of want to get into it. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing this sh on this show, just kind of like analyzing uh, socialist, uh, leftist texts for people who are interested. Hell, in, uh, yeah. And you know what? We're both still figuring out what we really believe and if anyone thinks they have it figured out already you know the road from here to communism they're lying so we're going to figure it out together as we go um but i should also introduce we have a very special guest on our first episode you may know him very well already if you're <laughs> listening to this show it's sean what's up sean what's up sean hi Hi, happy to be with you guys. Happy to uh, be appearing on this podcast. We're happy to have you. Thank you for, uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us, man. Uh, this this is giving me, uh, I mean, we've recorded um, a few times already, man. This is giving me flashbacks of uh, when you uh, came on my podcast, my first episode of A Time of Monsters, and we talked about historical materialism. Probably yeah. re re revisiting uh, some of those similar uh, themes in this episode, this pilot. So Yeah, that was a great episode, yeah. and I think... Um, with this text that uh, we're going to uncover here, we're kind of seeing. Oh the no, you cut out! Oh no! Oh no, you cutting out, Sean? I could. Oh, no. oh there you. Can you we there? Can I could see your uh, mouth moving. I was, I was saying, um, with the beginnings, uh, with this text, we're going to be uncovering some of the beginnings of that thing called historical ah, materialism. So we're kind of coming full circle now. All here. right, you cut out for a second, but I got the gist of what you just said. Hopefully yeah. that doesn't keep happening. Full circle, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I um, um. Audacity seems to be working fine. Right. Okay, well, that's good. Well, we are uh, so, backups, so that's good. Uh, worst case, we'll, I'll send you the All backup. All right, hopefully yeah. we can hear you enough to, you know, have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is... All right, I don't mind, I don't mind, like, repeating All right, that is, uh, that'll be annoying for Andy to edit, but you know what? He isn't on this episode, so he can uh, do, I don't know, I'm like... Am I, am I going to talk shit on Andy right now after he does so much work hey, for us? No. Ready to hear no, I'm not. I'm not. He's great. Something tells me he's going to hear no, it if, no. you, if, if you do Don't it. drag me in this shit, man. I just met him in person, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, yeah. right. Did you, yeah, you did guys you hung out the time? other day. Yeah. 
yeah, we had a great time, man. Uh, just like it was, it was really cool. Like uh, just talking to Andy about like what's going on in Atlanta and what he, he's been up to, what he thinks of the city, and uh, somebody there um, at the kind of shindig, whatever get together my ex was throwing, recognized him. Um, and yeah, that was pretty tight too. Ooh. So, uh, they were chatting. Recognized for a bit, yeah. him from where? Cool, man. From the Antifada. He was he's like, a he's like world famous Mapacha. Oh my god, yeah. that's. <laughs> she was like, "Are you AP Andy?" And he and he was like, "Yeah." That is so cool. He must have felt such a confusing mix of emotions. Knowing Andy. Yeah, it's, it's it happened weird. to. It happened to have been um, waist deep in a dumpster at the time, so it made it easier. <laughs> You're like, it must be. It must be him. It must be it. Ah, yeah. uh, because uh, world famous like, he is like a little bit infosec, but also I think he likes it when people like our podcast. So, as they sh- yeah, as yeah. as he should. And and you know when they like As when we they all like do. his books and his writing and stuff. So that's yeah. that's cool. I'm glad you guys got a chance to hang out. Oh yeah, man, it was tight. If you recognize one of us in the streets and you come up to us and you say hi, we're nice. We won't be mean to you. But yeah. I think it's kind of weird to be recognized anymore. So if I'm acting a little off, it's because I'm embarrassed. But, Is that why you're growing yeah. your hair so long over your face, Sean, so no one can see who you are? Yeah, so I can recognize you. You'd yeah, like so nobody can see me. <laughs> yes, that's that's the look that I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I like it. As I age into my 40s, I'm gonna become the girl from Dark. Uh, <laughs> I, I like. I don't mind. I like it when people recognize me and they like my shit. And I like it even more now that I'm. Well, I mean, I guess it still happens, but like, uh, I said in a tweet recently. You know, if you recognize me in public and you come up and talk to me and you say you like the majority report i'll talk to you until i want to leave if you say you like the antifada i'll talk to you until you want to leave so choose wisely yeah yeah, yeah choose wisely yeah, and yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. uh everybody loves communism it might be somewhere in the middle yeah 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 oh oh wait oh yeah um no that is also that is on the level of antifada so that is also okay, a, a good. very good choice. If you want to talk to me until you get sick of it, say that you love everybody loves communism and we'll be good to go. Yeah. So speaking of speaking and of I'm, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead. Let's start it off. Yeah, let's do it. So today we are going to start with the OG text. I mean, not really. There's lots of text that came before it. But the first text that most people read on the subject, certainly. The Communist Manifesto, fwah, 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 was written by uh, Daddy Marx and his, uh, his boy Angles in, uh, whoa, fuck, 1840-something. Oh, I'm fucking this up already. I'm fucking this up already. Uh, <laughs> That's why you brought you on, Sean. Yeah, against, against the backdrop of the revolutions of 1848, which were beginning to erupt across Europe, Mostly bourgeois revolutions, but uh, that's all right, as we'll get to in a second. Um, it, pr- it presents an analytical approach to the class struggle and the conflicts of capitalism, the, the contradictions embedded within the capitalist mode of production, um, rather than this kind of utopian prediction of what forms communism may take in the future, which Marx goes against pretty hard in this essay or pamphlet or whatever, as we'll get to in a second. Um, And I wanted Sean to give a little historical background on this uh, further. 
But perhaps before we do that, we could go around and say what our first experience was like reading the Communist Manifesto, because I have a feeling this isn't the first time that all of us have read it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this is actually only the second time that I've read it. I think the first time was, uh, was in college, so it's probably like, I don't know, like six, seven years ago. And uh, this copy is actually my sister's copy. Um, my sister is not a communist. She actually works for the State Department, so she's a fucking fed. Uh, but uh, she, uh, she went to China, and um, she, I guess, in preparation for going there to understand the uh, political economy or... Um, you know, professed political economy, uh, she got a copy of this, the Communist Manifesto. And uh, I, don't, I don't really know, like, when I picked it up. I mean, I don't think, I think this was before the Bernie campaign. It might have been around then. Um, but, you know, I think I, everybody goes, not everybody, you know, people can go from this transition from being like a lib to like a rad lib, you know, from watching Jon Stewart to, you know, enjoying his kind of like, uh, not necessarily biting critique, but at least like, you know, some of his critiques, um, against like Republicans and Democrats and the political establishment. And uh, I guess that's why I kind of gravitated towards, you know, a little bit more radical literature. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of like similar uh, experience to reading Capital, where it just kind of like opened up like my third eye or something, you know? Um, and it's a lot easier to read than Capital and a lot, a lot, a lot shorter. So uh, yeah, that was uh, my experience, just kind of carrying it around in school and reading this instead of the shit I had to read for uh, my writing and literature major, you know. Nice. What about you guys? So, oh wait, so you read it for fun? Yeah, I just read it for fun. Yeah, I found it. I found it. Like I said, my it was my sister's, and I found it in her bookcase. And um, I was just like, you know, fishing around for like whatever like little radical literature she had, mm -hmm. which wasn't much. And this was like one of the few, and I had never read it. And um, you know, first time, and she had made notes in it too, which. I'll get to that. There are notes in the margins that um, I love my sister, man. Um, she won't listen to this, so it's fine. <laughs> um, but it, she made notes in the margins where I'm like, man, I understand why, like, you know, you work for the fucking imperial, you know, empire. I, I understand why you work for the empire now. You know what I mean? Because you didn't really, I don't think you really, uh, you didn't understand. I don't think you really understood. Um, or you just didn't agree with it, which is not fine. But that's why we have the show hopefully bring more people in Word. But, yeah. and you know i hope she listens to it i don't know i want everyone to listen to it i i met some of uh my friend debbie's uh wine mom cousins in rhode island over the weekend and they are trump supporters and they were like interested and they're like oh you do a podcast that's cool what is it and i told them i told them what it was i told them i'm a leftist yeah. and they're like well we love trump but we'll check it out and i was like awesome like i want <laughs> I want okay. this to be an accessible resource, even for people who don't yeah. necessarily agree with us, you know? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe we'll change uh, their minds. Yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to be, uh, I mean, I don't think we should be like sectarian, you know what I mean? Especially for people that like mm -hmm. are just curious, you know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of like just making things approachable and accessible to people. Yeah. And a lot, I really think a lot of right wing populism is just a reaction to liberal bullshit. Yeah, I was at the City uh, University of New York Hunter College and I had an intro to anthropology course and the section from uh, the manifesto Bourgeois and Proletarians mm. was assigned as like an early example of anthropology and um, I was entranced by it. I had gotten into 
like sort of Marxian politics through society the spectacle before that oh yeah so I really jumped a lot of steps before I got back to the manifesto but uh, it was really eye-opening for me uh, the, the the kind of outlining of historical materialism and certainly the sort of um, I don't know purple prose about capitalism and its overthrowing uh, definitely got me hooked again and it was around that time that I started to take uh, Marx's mature work of political economy which is like 20 years after this seriously and so uh, yeah the manifesto and I have been hanging out for like uh, 20 years or so I think I will say I first read it in my political my AP political science class in high school under the tutelage of one Doc Saro. Uh, yes, I went to a high school where my poli-sci teacher had a PhD. Everyone called her Doc. That is, I'm checking my privilege right now. I remember <laughs> telling it to my ex-boyfriend, and he was like, yo, my poli-sci, or what do you say, some teacher that he had, he's like, she was five years older than me. <laughs> and I flirted yeah. with her for a good grade. And I'm like... Most, most, people's, most people's, like, if they have political science or government, is mostly, like, the... The fucking like basketball coach or some shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like you also moonlights as a gym teacher or some shit. You yeah. Know? Well, like I said, I'm checking my privilege. Shout out to Doc Saro. Um, she is definitely a lib, but mm. pretty based for a boomer ass lib. I will say to have her students read the Communist Manifesto in a high school poli sci course, and um, I remember maybe because she's a lib, or maybe because I just like didn't have enough background to understand it it didn't really turn me into a communist i was more viewing it in through a liberal framework of like oh aren't these just interesting ideas that we should all know about and the, the one thing that really stuck in my mind though like the one thing i can remember through these many years that i've been you know killing brain cells is uh what marx thought of bourgeois women and she's like, mm. Mar- mm. he he th- he thought that they were prostitutes. They were all prostitutes. And I was like, well, that's not nice. Yeah. And now I totally get it. Yeah, and yeah, also, yeah. I don't think <laughs> there's anything wrong with being a prostitute per se. So, yeah. But like there was a, you know, like a week there when all the kids at the prep school were walking around with their copies of the Communist Manifesto and making everybody nervous. I mean, well, I think by the time the the '90s or the or the 2000s come, uh, certainly before like socialism, whatever that means, came back into the mainstream and Marxists started to be heard again, it was seen as like an odd historical document. You know, it was like you would read it, I think, in high school or in introductory college courses, in all in order to like understand historically what, say, like the Soviet Union was or whatever. It was seen as like this anachronistic sort of like social theory that we moved beyond, but was still important for understanding how things played out in the 20th century, for for example. And I think that obviously we take it a lot more seriously that, than that, and we should. But I think that's why it gets assigned, you know, or why it got assigned to students. So you want to give us yeah. a little bit of historical background on the conditions of how this text was created? And perhaps some yeah, of the sure. reception um, at the time, which I understand, it was not an instant hit. No, no not favorable no. at all at first, right? No, I mean, you mentioned it's from um, 1848 and it was published, something like 300 copies were in print. 
when the uh, revolutions of 1848 happened, this kind of wave of um, liberal democratic revolutions uh, across Europe against absolutism, against uh, monarchy, against the remnants of feudal society. Uh, but the Manifesto of the Communist League, which Marx wrote, had barely any effect on that whatsoever. It had only been written by a few people. In retrospect, though, in like 20 years or so, when it starts to become popular, it's seen as like this prophetic text. Mm. You know, certainly because in, 19, in 1848, when he's writing about basically all the things we've seen over the last 160 years with capitalism, uh, industrialization, globalization, um, you know, this, this great, uh, the great inequalities between the classes, the power of the capitalist class, imperialism, you know, by, by later on in the 19th century, it became clear that, uh, you know, there was something here in this analysis. But it starts off, you know, like you can't talk about the manifesto without um, understanding that something like socialism or communism or anarchism uh, had existed since the late 18th century, uh, primarily uh, journeymen whose guilds were being debased and um, newly proletarianized peasants um, started to like immediately question, certainly with the French Revolution and after, um, the power of not just the state but also of, of private tyranny as well. So by the time Marx writes this in 1848, you'd already had like Gracchus Labouffe and the San Calats during the uh, French Revolution, which is like a proletarian equalizing movement. You'd had the Proudhonists, of course, in France, mm -hmm. like an early mutualist sort of anarchism that had arisen. Uh, and all of these are closely tied to the workers' movement at this time, this rising workers' movement. In Germany, you had a group uh, called the uh, True Socialists, and Marx yeah. really needles them in this text there with our ideas of, new, of creating a new Jerusalem on earth, who were um, essentially Christian socialists. They were taking like Protestantism, and they were talking for the heaven about the heaven of earth, mm. heaven, heaven on earth, you know, God's heaven on earth, and creating equality from, but from like a Christian utopian standpoint. And so Marx was in a group called the Communist Correspondence League, I think it was, and his friend convinced him, and it was like maybe like 18 guys all spread throughout Europe who were like sharing information and ideas with each other by letters. And then uh, a friend of Marx has said, why don't you join uh, this group called the League of the Just, mm. which is incredible sounding. It yeah. sounds like something from a Marvel. Uh, yeah, it really Marvel does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or Comrade League or some <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah the, the Comrade League of the Just, <laughs> such as it was, was, um, was by, uh, it was run by a guy named uh, William Whiteley, I believe his name was. And he was exactly one of these sort of proletarian artisan uh, Christian socialist and Marx actually does entryism at this point and he joins uh, the League of the Just which quickly kind of with the combination of the League of the Just with the communist um, correspondence becomes the Communist League which would eventually become the, the first international so this group uh, the Communist League says Marx you're really smart why don't you write a text and so he he went out and he wrote this manifesto and he basically like pilloried everybody else yeah. in, in, uh, in, in the socialist and communist movement, including a bunch of people in the Communist League as well. So the Communist Manifesto can be looked at as two things, I think, uh, which is first a sort of early working out of the conception of historical materialism uh, and understanding how uh, class uh, affects history and affects society. 
uh, and also obviously how that is bringing us towards an overcoming of capitalism and all that. But it's also, and you see this, especially in the middle of the text, like the, the third and, and into the fourth part of it, it's a real, um, I don't know, like a, a real serious critique of other ideas yeah. of socialism yeah. and communism that were going around at the time as he's kind of like making fun of the utopians, he's making fun of the, the true socialists, he's making fun of all of the feudal... The petty bourgeois uh, socialists as the well. petty bourgeois yeah. socialists, yeah, and the, the feudal socialists. So it's really Marx uh, making a political statement as well. Uh, one, a question, Sean, about that. Uh, yeah. so, so what was the reaction like when like this was like released like initially like was it received well i mean did it cause like a panic because i mean we'll talk about it you know when we talk about the book but you know uh you know he says uh, the first lines the specter is haunting europe right the specter of communism right and a specter is something that hasn't actually like materialized yet right it's just the perception of a threat you know is what's implied here. and yet so i'm still, assuming that those like, could still hmm. be pretty scary they can still be scary as shit yeah <laughs> so i'm pretty sure like you know like the bourgeois they were like terrified but it was also i guess was it ill-received to kind of like uh dumb down the effect that it could cause by like galvanizing like working people like spreading it around is that why it was it was it wasn't well received or uh it wasn't well received because uh this was like an early early iteration of the the organized communist movement mm. like i said these sort of ideas existed in these early trade unions they existed in working class neighbors they existed in um in revolution when when uh, revolts would pop off like you saw in the french revolution mm -hmm. you saw in france after that too but at this early date it was like 20 people you know yeah, yeah. And so of course as um as the working class grows as proletarianization continues as these sort of feudal bonds um start to totter and fall even more and really just as like uh, proletarianization and capital accumulation picks up, uh, these ideas become more and more relevant because there's a much larger audience for it, which are proletarians, of course. Um, so initially, um, yeah, like it, it's seen in retrospect as like predicting or being prophetic about 1848, mm. but really it isn't until like the 1860s with the first International Workingmen's Association, mm. which is 1862, the first international, as we call it that uh, these ideas start to spread in a serious way. And even then, you know, we think of Marxism as being like coterminous with communism. Mm. But of course, in the International Working Men's Association, even in the 1860s, uh, Marx and Marxists are having to like um, get into serious debates with Bakuninists and anarchists and mutualists about what this communist movement means, what the working class means in relationship to overcoming capital. So again, in retrospect, you know, people by the time the second the the first and second internationals come up, if you were like a Marxist at this point, if you took Marx's line that he starts to put together around this time. Uh, then you would be repping the Communist Manifesto, but it wasn't like selling millions of copies, you know? Yeah, I... Later on it would, So, of do you think the Manifesto played a role in the spread of these ideas, or was it more that Marx was just super smart and predicted what was going to happen? Or maybe a little column A, a little column B? Because I feel like he's a pretty good hype man here, you know? Like saying, this is a science... Bourgeois society contains within it the seeds of its own destruction, and here's how it's gonna happen. Here's how it's maybe it's already happening. It's already a ghost. Mm. Ghosts are scary as shit, right? Like, was he 
getting was it a case of fake it till you make it or was he that he was, right he was like i think he was uniquely attuned to the changes that are happening in european society at this time and just to be able you know in this in this time of like deep reaction through europe where monarchies are trying to hold on to power there's like intense repression uh there's like anti-democratic movements and whatever uh, and there's also the the future of capitalism is is by no means in people's eyes at this time guaranteed. You know, there's all these movements against it. Uh, he was very attuned to these changes taking place, and he, unlike other people, took seriously uh, the scientific aspect of understanding society. As a revolutionary, he saw trying to understand capitalism, and this was this was unique, you know, compared to others. He saw uh, understanding capitalism, having a scientific understanding of its inner workings and its contradictions, as part of this growth of consciousness of this proletarian movement to overcome capitalism. So he is like he he creates this incredible method that we all know and love so well. Uh, because um, you know he, he took that seriously when others were more 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 uh, calling for action, creating one of the things he pillories in this too is people who create like secret societies mm. and like um, secret like, leagues, uh, shall we say? Like that. Mm. Yeah, secret leagues. Got people like Louis Blanqui, whose like idea of a communist revolution was to get like twenty conspirators together and like one day to strike upon the yeah. state and overthrow it and then do communism for other people. Well, it's so alienated. You know, mass politics though that's the problem yeah and Marx took mass politics seriously which a lot of other people didn't so it comes off as prophetic because he understood capitalism and also because the movement against capitalism did become a mass movement based around the working class as he was calling for at this time heck yeah he was a smart boy I've said it before I'll say it again um uh, before, I guess, Sean, since you got to go soon, do you guys want to start? Because actually, to kind of hinge on something you said, um, if you got, if we want to start with the first chapter, one of the one of the things in the first chapter that kind of blew my mind when I first read it was um, historical materialism. You know, like this idea that I mean, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. You know, that's like literally the first like sentence of the first chapter, and uh, I think that like. That was something that was like revelatory to me because it's easy to think of um, like things and processes, you know, like it was kind of easy for me to think about it like that. But the idea that history wasn't something that was um, subjective, you know, like history wasn't about like, you know, the great ideas by great individuals, you know, um, that it was it wasn't idealistic, but it was material. You know, it was about like uh, material forces and class conflict antagonism. And um, I don't know, that was like really eye opening for me. And he talks a lot about that in that first chapter to kind of lay out like how the pro, uh, how the bourgeois came to power out of feudalism. Right? Um, and I think that's really important for people to like, especially like, like understanding these ideas, like understanding like what does idealism mean versus materialism and why are like leftists like should be materialists. Right. If you want to be. Uh, not just a good leftist, but you really have any like hope at all of like you know like uh, seeing like our common goals kind of achieve, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The basic uh, thesis of historical materialism is right in here, and of course Marx works on it 
through the rest of his life, but social change here happens when the means of production and exchange on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up were generated by feudal society. At a certain stage in development of these means of production and of exchange, the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry, in one word, the feudal relations of property, became no longer capable with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. There you have it. That's right. Um, yeah, I really like his defense of materialism here. And throughout the manifesto, he kind of shows how idealism uh, is used to sort of justify the existing state of things by the ruling class of every mode of production. Of course, he leaves out hunter-gatherer society, uh, wherein for the vast majority of our history of, as, as a species, we lived under a form of primitive communism, but he might not uh, really consider that to be society, or maybe they didn't know that much about it at the time that he was writing. But um, the idea that, I guess we should define these terms for people, right, who might not know. So idealism is basically the idea that, you know, it's the ideas in the heads of man that creates the world around us. And usually, you know, the heads of great men, right? And materialism is says it's the other way around. It's the world around us that creates the ideas. And it's not hard to see how the former could justify um, hierarchical modes if you're like, well, the people who are in charge, they have these great ideas that are shaping the world and that must be why they're in charge. No, their ideas are shaping the world because they're in charge. It's the other way around. <laughs> and right. he throughout so. it, he said, you know, the ideas that shape the world are the ideas of the people in charge. And obviously those ideas are gonna be geared towards justifying their own position of power over others. Exactly, exactly. Whereas like, you know, materialism says that like the way that we interact with nature in order to like make shit, you know, like that's the material basis of all like society. You know, that's that's it's not that, you know, this this one uh, king, you know, this monarch like decided that, hey, I want a war, you know, um, with this other monarch or king. It's there's a lot of social forces, right, that are behind that. Right. And we can see the same thing with like the rise of nation states and like war imperialism. Right. Like these are all like the machinations of forces that are much greater than any one person, you know. Dead ass. <laughs> I can't tell if Sean is trying um, to say something or not. No, you're good. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. So, uh, I'm just taking the the back the back roll. Oh yeah, like, that's uh, good. Oh, we're not recording. Oh, what happened? Anymore. Oh shit. Recording has stopped. Okay. All right. Well. Okay. Good. It should be good. All right. I think it's, it just stopped just now. Recording again. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, let's back up a little bit and go over some of what yeah. he says in this chapter because it's good. Um, so. Of course, the classic line he begins with, the, hither, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Um, and then he goes through what some of these societies were, whether we're talking about uh, Roman slave society or uh, feudal society where you were ruled by aristocrats and kings. Um, and he says the bourgeoisie is uh, revolutionary in that it's sort yeah. of doing away with these old kinds of social relations. He says, yeah. the bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science, 
into its paid wage laborers. So basically going over the transition from feudalism to capitalism that's still occurring, really, at the time that this is written. You know, it's further along in some countries than others. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just saying how the bourgeoisie, this new class of capitalists who are paying workers to work for a wage and extracting surplus value from them, how this is really revolutionary and has changed everything about the world. Should we? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's, uh, I mean, think about the idea of, think about what reactionaries like um, call for these days and what they uphold, these sort of natural hierarchies that exist, right? Ordained by a supreme being, ordained by a god that basically creates this whole organic community where everybody has their place, has their estate that they live in. I mean, that's hearkening back to this feudal period and that's the way that feudal relations were, right? You had your place and you stuck in it, stuck with it, it's ordained by God, you had no choice, you couldn't do anything about it. You know, capitalism comes along and literally smashes all that up mm. because all of a sudden now you have this sort of rising class, but one that's not tied to those same bounds of feudal society, not even the same ideology per se, yeah. right? And is rising and like smashing up those uh, organic sort of like, um, conceptions of hierarchical power and creating a new world in their image mm. you know as they revolutionize production you know as they're constantly updating and changing machinery getting rid of the old and bringing in the new they're doing the same in the realm of society too and smashing up the old ideas and the old way of That's, doing things yeah. and this is something that marx is really good about in this text which is pointing to this revolutionary potential of uh the bourgeoisie that's right capital. and you know i think in some ways it serves to justify what marx is trying to do and what the communist party is trying to do right he's saying we're not doing anything that the bourgeoisie hasn't already done their revolution right, exactly. they were revolutionaries yeah. too and we're going to do the same fucking thing but on behalf of a new class of people called the proletariat which is the majority of everybody in the world so i like i like how he sets that up well it wasn't yeah sorry to interrupt All right. but like, not everybody was proletarianized yet at this point in time no no but it's a good point though because because you're right like proletarianization starts to happen but he also predicted against you know, a lot of people, including many of the communists, that uh, this process of proletarianization would cre create, you know, so like basically the majority of society working as wage laborers. That wasn't given, you know, in in, uh, in 1848. Yeah, true. But he understood Once this again, process. Once yeah. again, super smart boy. So let's let me read a little quote that I like because I think he's a very evocative writer in this. He says, "All fixed, fast, frozen relations." with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. And man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. Bars, man. Boom. God damn. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, dude. I mean, that's... that's uh, Jokingly, I put that as the pin tweet in my profile, which is uh, at Twitter. Me watching all that salad melt into air. Haha, ha, fuck yeah, yes. <laughs> Me facing with sober senses my real conditions of life. Well, this fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> is that dialectics? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, like he talks about yeah. how uh, the, the progression to capitalism is both, you know, an incomplete obviously he wants to progress to the next phase after that uh of human development but progressive on some level 
right? When he talks about how it tears down national barriers via globalization, yeah. um, creates these divisions between city and countryside. Obviously, um, we need to change that, <laughs> but interesting things are happening in the cities. It centralizes money and the power to govern um, and, and develops the productive forces. Um, sorry, Aaron, what were you gonna say? I wanted to um, I wanted to read like a quote that um that uh that I like a lot and I like this quote because my sister I was telling you earlier Jamie my sister uh, put notes in the margins you know and I think for the the normies or even for people that are just kind of like just entering into like this this our little like world which should be all of our, our whole entire world everyone's world um, I think that her her questions are helpful for people that have the same questions right and we can kind of explain like. Um, like kind of give her a, a retort, a response, but she, this quote says, it compels all nations, and he's talking about um, the bourgeoisie, it compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e. to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. And my sister kind of put that in brackets, that last sentence. In one word, it creates a world after its own image, which you mentioned earlier, Sean, which is what, like, you know, capitalism does. And she asked, um, who are we to create a world after our own image? And I don't know if she was criticizing because she's criticizing the idea, um, you know, that we are the stewards of our own destinies, right? Like, I don't know if it came from some religious sort of, like, um, you know, opinion that she had, or if... You know, commonly, you know, uh, uh, the the attack against socialists or communists is like, well, who put you in charge, right? And it's not like, motherfucker, it's not me that's in charge, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? I and I as an individual am not in charge, right? It's a dictatorship of the proletariat. So I just wanted to make that clear to people because, as you were saying, Jamie, you know, um, the bourgeoisie is the true revolutionary class, not the only one but a revolutionary class in and of itself, right? So it's like they've already done all of the things that we should be doing, right? They've had their revolution, you know? But I just want to make that clear to people about, like, you know, and I think that's, that's a deeper conversation for another time about, you know, public ownership versus private ownership versus state ownership, you know, what the USSR was, what China is. But I just, as an introductory kind of thing, it's about a dictatorship of the proletariat. It's about working people being the stewards of their own destinies, not just of what they make, but of social relations. Mm -hmm. And soon erasing class antagonism through the erasure of class itself eventually right just abolishing class itself yeah well yeah and it's not like the i think sorry. marx addresses some of this in the second chapter where he goes through all these different uh potential objections to uh transition yeah yeah, yeah. uh i was gonna say this brings up the question of agency right because it's not like the nascent capitalist class were like, let's come up with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. uh, let's come up with this idea of like individual rights and and freedoms and shit. And then we'll, we'll like get together and uh, I don't know, overthrow some governments and institute some new form of government and state over people mm -hmm. so that we can trade better. It's that this sort of like atomistic molecular movement of all of these capitalists incentivized by profit you know end up eating away at the old society 
so that in order it's not like they don't have agency 100 percent agency there it's like everything is compelling them to act in such a way as to revolutionize not just production but the state and so what Marx says, and you know, this is kind of like his conclusion, is that now that we understand this, now that we can face with sober conditions, our, our, our sober, whatever, our, our true conditions of life, now that we're conscious of this, now that we understand history, now that we understand capitalism and society, now we can make the conscious decision to do that revolution ourselves. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and before, we, before we jump to chapter two, I know, I don't know if we're going fast, but this part is really important too. Because in chapter one, there are like three things which we talked about, you know, how the bourgeoisie came to power, historical materialism. Um, but the development of the proletariat and the fact that there, the seeds of destruction, like through the existence of the proletariat, are already there. They're embedded within capitalism itself, right? Um, overproduction that lead to crises, right? That lead to, you know, um, these productive forces that are butting up against like social relations, right? That are untenable. You know, I think that's like another like and I've told you this, Sean, like I've always been obsessed with like apocalyptic dystopian films, Jamie. And like I've always realized that like most of these films, except unless it's an alien invasion or some shit like that. Right. Like it's like it's the seeds of destruction are embedded within society, you know, and that has been very appealing to me reading this text because it doesn't mean that it's necessarily inevitable. Right. And but it is hopeful in a way that this cannot this means that it can't possibly last because the same the same weapons that the bourgeoisie use to kind of sway feudalism and become hegemonic, like the bourgeoisie has given us those same exact weapons, right? <laughs> Which I think like is an interesting kind of hopeful dialectical concept for people to uh, you know, kinda of latch onto. Yeah, absolutely. I mean reading this it's actually sad that this is in any way optimistic to me. Like, I tweeted about this. I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's oddly comforting to think that communism will win if capitalism doesn't destroy the world first. And that's a big yeah. fucking if right there. But I still feel like it's more hopeful than what a lot of people think, which is that, you know, capitalism might just continue on forever and reorganizing into shittier and shittier versions of itself as it goes, right? Yeah. Um, can I can I read this quote? Because again, like uh, this is also why I like this text a lot. And I mean, capital is a little bit more dry, but this language in this text is like it's really like I mean, he's angry as fuck, man. He's passionate. Uh, he's big mad. And, um, yeah. yeah, he's fucking mad as shit. He says, um, he's talking. Uh, he says, uh, modern bourgeois society with its relation of production, of exchange, and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and and of exchange, is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. And I like I highlighted that years ago because visually imagining this dark like magician, you know what I mean? Like harnessing this energy and then realizing that he can no longer control it, you know? Um, to continue with that, he says, uh, the weapons with which the bourgeoisie felled feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. Um, but not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. Dun, 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 dun. dun, dun yeah, then we ride in here. And then we ride in That's the League of the Just. The League of the Just, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so um, good. Yeah, I, I really like yeah. that part, too. I, uh, I copied and pasted it in my notes. And yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's, it's just so good. Um, also, importantly... It sort of describes the process by which uh, capitalism builds up the forces of production 
via this uh, competition. But at the same time, as it builds up the forces of production, um, paves the way, it says, for more extensive and destructive crises and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. So again, it's like, it's a step. It's just a step, guys. Let's not get stuck on it. Yeah. Capitalism is yeah, a, yeah. It's, it's just a stepping stone to something greater. And I do, like, he, he clearly thinks that we have to pass through a phase of uh, capitalism and proletarianization before we can advance to communism, right? Like, he talks about the other classes a little bit here, too. He talks about how the proletariat is the only revolutionary class. Sorry, peasants and shopkeepers. Uh, <laughs> and pawnbrokers, except Because yeah. the other classes, uh, like, they're fighting to stay in the middle. Um, also, and, and, and to preserve feudal social relations, um, in, like the guild system and whatnot, um, as he's going to go over in another chapter. Also, he talks about the lumpen proletariat, the quote-unquote dangerous class, as the social yes. scum that passively... that. He calls it, and, and we're thinking about like what, like people without jobs, drug dealers, prostitutes, yeah. um, I don't know, street yeah. urchins, <laughs> whatever they had in Marx's day. Um, he says the social scum that pa that passively rotting mass thrown off Jesus. by the lowest layers of the old society may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. Yeah, man. I think I think that's the that's the part that I find um, interesting, man. Because it's like it's like whether or not society regresses or moves forward, it depends on the outcome of like these class struggles, you know. And I think that that dangerous class, like that, worried me a lot. And um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in my analysis, but I just thought of like not just the not the lumpen uh, the lumpen terry, but I thought of like like you know Trump like supporters, right? I thought of like reactionary like you know like like working class people like who are not always white but majority who are white you know um and that's like worrisome to me because like i think those people are like perfect fodder for like reactionary politics right i mean voting against their best interests of course and i mean liberals quote democrats do it too as well right but um we're not guaranteed to necessarily win i, I think that i want to make that clear is that uh, i don't know it's confusing because inevitable it, it, it is a process that he's describing, a, a systemic process, but it also does depend on, you know, the actions of the working class, like how we're able to, like, you know, increase, raise class consciousness and organize ourselves. Yeah. You know? So I don't know if it's quite well, inevitable, but go ahead, Soren, sorry. No, no, I was going to bounce off what you said. This is where um, I kind of uh, shade away from the the hagiography of this um, this piece here, because if you look at, so so we have the early instance of historical materialism, we have all this understanding of capitalism as not just revolutionizing society, but also ideas of the proletariat becoming this sort of central class within society that produces all value. We have that within this, and that's obviously something that's been borne out. However, when we start to look politically at this document, you know, again, this 1848 document um, didn't go quite as according to plan, mm. right? So for Marx, there's like, Marx understands or uh, predicts, I suppose, uh, these stages happening where it would start off with what they saw at their time, which is like Luddites attacking the means of production, um, workers like attacking shopkeepers and 
doing low-level kind of sporadic class struggle. And then the next stage would be trade unionism, which he was seeing too, and like struggles in the nation state around the 10-hour workday. And then also, of course, in the next stage, like the proletariat fighting for democracy a long alongside the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. Uh, sections of the ruling class joining with the proletariat in this sort of democratic workers' struggle against the state. Uh, and then he would, at the end of this, like his last stage in this document, is that there would be an absolute immiseration of the proletariat. Mm. That, like, this vast, like, basically the capitalism, like, the productivity would go up, but wages wouldn't, mm -hmm. until you had this absolutely immiserated working class, which would then lead to a seizure of the state and the abolition of class. He says right here, uh, like I think it's in the second chapter, this is, uh, quote, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. Which, if you look oh, at yeah. it, I mean, that's literally that's like yeah. Stalinism, right? There. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so like, so, so I guess you know we can appreciate like the rhetoric in this, mm -hmm. and and also the kind of like early understanding of historical materialism and understanding the working class is central to this. But it is literally not true that this sort of stage, the the stagist sort of like movement of the proletariat. Um, and this absolute immiseration, which actually Marx like backs away from in, in Capital, he's moved on from absolute immiseration to relative immiser immiseration mm -hmm. with his mature theory. But like this sort of stages struggle on the part of the working class didn't happen yeah. that way, yeah. and we need to face that. I, th I don't think we should yeah. run away. From I mean, it. that makes a whole lot of sense, especially like when people say, "Oh, well, the uh, the average person's standard of living." capitalism has raised that so much you can buy whatever cheap shit you want on amazon like you have a iphone like your life is great but relatively to the richest people in society it, like inequality has never been higher so i do yeah, think that was an important intervention to make although like yes immiseration is also on the rise and uh <laughs> cannot be understated it may just you know, it could just be this absolute immiseration is coming. It just took a lot longer than Marx thought. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we could still be on our way there. But uh, yeah, even like Marx's crisis theory in this uh, in this early document compared to his mature work with Cap the three volumes of Capital uh, and what on the Grundrisse, uh, he's he basically argues that there's uh, there are crises of overproduction of commodities. Mm -hmm. When instead he, his his mature theory lands at overaccumulation ah. as the sort of mechanism of crisis. So like we need to look at this 1848 document with a bit of a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. You can't just say like this is what Marx believed. This is yeah. Marxism mm -hmm. yeah. because Marx himself changes his minds about this thing. These sort of things uh, moving. So forward. I know you have to go in a minute, Sean. We're gonna keep going though because we're yeah. having a good Hell time. Yeah. Um, when you talk about this, like, yeah, because th this, this stagist concept is very much present in the manifesto. And, you know, having mostly read, I, I mean, I'm balls deep in capital right now. I'm going to be finished with it soon. Um, it's, hey. it's like, it's very, uh, it's, it's kind of new to me. Well, old, but also new again to read Marx even uh, writing out some instructions for how we're going to get to communism, because for the most part, he doesn't do that, right? He said one time, you know, it's not up to me to write receipts for the cookshops of the future. He's, his, mm -hmm. his, his method is primarily one of analysis, 
not one of like, yeah. here's how we're going to do the thing that we have yeah. to do. Got to do the thing. So Cause we won't know until it kind of till the material conditions like arrive. Yeah. Right? I mean, we don't know until it kind of happens. Right. Which sounds like a cop out. But I mean, it's just it's kind of true. <laughs> well, well, I mean, he's also polemically he's arguing against like the Owenites and the Fourierists, these people who want to create a blueprint yeah. create these model and communities I, and like build like a bourgeois. And I, I wanted to ask about that, that part too, because like I do think it's good to have some fish it's on our vision board when people are like, well, how the fuck there is anything can work <laughs> in communism? How can get from point like, A to point B? How the, yeah. Well, a how do we get there? But also like how the how do we get anyone to work? Like we should have some answers yeah. to those questions, I think. Because, like, you know, shit could always be worse and people aren't going well, to get on board. We'll get, we'll get to it, but in a, is it the second? I mean, actually, we could. Oh. It's the second chapter. He actually addresses, like, the, these, yeah. like, uh, these critiques yeah, yeah. of the comments. Well, let's, let's definitely get to that. But what I was going to ask, mm. what I was mm. going to ask about this was um, does Marx at any point in time revise this uh, stagist conception of how we get from capitalism to communism via this intermediate phase of dictatorship of the proletariat, a.k.a. state socialism. And as a sort of an anti-state communist, I would say, how do we, what's, like, what's our answer to this if this doesn't work? You know, like, uh, could, could you have a dictatorship I, I think, of the uh, proletariat without a state, question mark? I think you guys are going to have to do <clears throat> another episode on the critique of the Gotha program. I think that's really what you're asking, because that's like 20-something years later, and Marx is uh, addressing this shit again. But before I go, and I do have to go, unfortunately, there's something that really struck me that was really interesting, because we're talking about like uh, this awareness that this revolutionary potential of the proletariat still exists, that capitalism is still riven with contradictions, uh, that like, you know, the, the, the capitalism creates its own grave digger, mm -hmm. right? We you know, accept that and believe that that's still true. And yet, for the reasons I, ta I pointed to and that we're talking about with like stagism and shit, and also just the history of like the Soviet Union, uh, it's clear that we can't just simply like rehearse the same ideas and do the same things that people did in the 19th century and understand something different to happen. When I was reading the section, um, section two, is it? Which is the one where he's critiquing all the different types of comments? Oh, that's, uh, that that's, three. Three. that's three. But like, yeah, he says something like, um, the French ideology made it over to Germany, but they didn't adapt it to Couldn't the material conditions. Yeah. So it yeah. was just fucking useless. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the, it's section three. I just looked it up. In section three, he goes through all these different types of socialism that he's critiquing. But he doesn't say that they're just wrong. And that's the interesting thing about it is he points to the reasons why people believe this th these things based on like the conditions that they saw at that time. And he also understands the process of um, the political process of like imagining communism, the idea, our, our, our ideas of how to create communism as changing based on the development of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So he's arguing that like as we as as communists were getting closer to that present moment they could finally start to understand the things that were obscure to them when capitalism was in like a less advanced state of development so really communist theory is then imminent it's like reflexive with the development of capitalism so he's he's giving us right there if we appreciate this method uh the ability to say like as the as this sort of forward development this this 
tendential development of capitalism continues as uh, the productive forces change, as the sort of, um, as general commodity production deepens, as more and more things are commodified and more and more proletarianization is taking place, necessarily your visions of how to create communism will be different yeah right and he points out to this in the past and so we can go beyond marx then and say that in light of what we've seen in the last 170 years and the way that capitalism has changed we can now understand the overcoming of capitalism differently than even marx could yeah. as long as we understand that our theory arises out of comes out of these sort of material relations comes out of the struggle that we're seeing on the ground and it's not just some shit from 1848 we're imposing onto the present that makes sense. Yeah, no, that made perfect sense. That made perfect sense. I mean, I think, I think again, like one thing to remember in the beginning chapter is like, and again, this gives me hope is that like you know, um, it's the same way that the bourgeoisie is developing, right, and ever expanding, right, and ever finding expanding into new markets as well. Um, you know, exploiting, you know, using new tactics to exploit old markets, and um, you know, using new tactics to exploit new markets, right. Like, at the same time, the development of the proletariat is also happening in parallel, right? So I think that's, like, kind of hopeful, like, you know, uh, and I keep using the word hopeful because, I mean, uh, we were talking about it earlier, Sean, but, like, it's pretty fucking grim now. Like, we're living in some dark-ass times of the empire, man, and I think, like, opening up with a text like this, like, gives people that kind of impetus that they need, that, like, uh, ideological, like, understanding that they need, you know? Um that um yeah as you said like this isn't uh this isn't necessarily inevitable inevitable but um conditions change as you know material uh as material conditions change and contradictions widen but like we're not uh we're not asked out yet i guess is what i'm saying you know we still have a shot yeah i mean if like one example of what i was talking about is here in this chapter excuse me chapter three section three <clears throat> on uh, critical utopian socialism and communism. Mm-hmm. And here he's talking about like uh, Gracias Babouf and Saint Simone uh, Fourier, like these early socialists, like 40 years before him. Uh, Marx says the first direct attempts of the proletariat to attend, uh, to attain its own ends, made in times of universal excitement when feudal society was being overthrown, necessarily failed. Mm-hmm owing to the then underdeveloped state of the proletariat, as well as to the absence of economic conditions for its emancipation, Mm. conditions that had yet to be produced and could be produced by the impending bourgeois epoch alone. The revolutionary literature that accompanied these first movements of the proletariat had necessarily a reactionary character. It inculcated universal asceticism and social leveling in its crudest form. So now here we are, like 160 years later, 170 years later or whatever, and like maybe the ideas from the 19th century seem crude now. Like the idea that you would have to grasp the state and start to like increase the, uh, the forces of production mm. seems pretty antiquated now when we're at a moment in human history where uh, we... Uh, increasing the forces of production might not necessarily be what we have to do. Yeah. It might be the, the task of, of communists, uh, given the opportunity to instead like tamp down on so much of this useless production of shitty things yeah. and start to, again, like change the relations of production and ensure that everybody can have a decent amount of yeah. what's left. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So like our theory today, I think, should necessarily be different from what it was back then. Yeah. Or even Marx did ago. not account for climate change, I gotta say. He did, however, predict... No. The destruction of the environment. I don't know where it is right now, but it was. Uh, I'm like, you know, he really thought about everything. But it's on the. He called it the metabolic rift. He was trying to understand why soil 
was depleted under capitalist yeah. agriculture. Yeah, they were they were doing they were fucking up that. the environment back then too. But uh, you know, not to the degree like fuck. It's like ninety degrees out still. It's eight o'clock p.m. in New York City in June. Like what the fuck? This, this is, is not insane. good. Um, but okay, I'm definitely gonna jump around a little bit because I want Sean's mm-hmm. take on this. And I, I gotta. I think I gotta run okay, in like ten okay. minutes. But I, I will. I will give. I will. I will okay. give one more take. One more take. Okay. One more take. <laughs> um, choose wisely. So, throughout the manifesto, he really posits it as I'm just the messenger. You know, I'm not inventing this idea. I mean, he didn't yeah. invent the idea of communism, uh, but he's saying he's describing what will happen. He's like. This is a science. I'm just, you know, like the weatherman or whatever. I'm telling you which way the wind is blowing, and I'm telling you this mm. is a process. We got a, we got a tendency. We got a counter tendency. They like bump up against each other, and there's the rupture, and that's what moves human society along, basically. And these, uh, these counter tendencies are often the conflict of classes. He's saying this is gonna happen, basically. So. I don't know. Like, I feel like some people have sort of a determinist vision from that saying, oh, well, don't worry about it. Like, like the classic armchair, you know, the armchair left comps or whatever. They're like, don't worry about it. It's going to develop from one thing to another. There's not much any individual communist can do. There's certainly nothing I can do. So don't ask me to do anything. Right. And, and, and like Mark seems like you have the ingredients in there for that attitude. Right. So if you think of this as a natural process that's occurring, what is the place of a communist party or person in any of this? Like, what do we what can what can we even do? Like, what's the point of forming a communist party? What's the point of organizing the working class if this is something that will just happen as if by nature, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think Marx, he pulls back on this determinism later on in his life. And because after eight, the revolutions of 1848 fail everywhere, you know, these democratic revolutions fail uh, in the midst of uh, economic crisis, too. Marx decides that he needs to, A, continue along this, continue along this route of scientifically analyzing capitalism and its contradictions. But also, and this is one of the big parts of capital, what it's about is how capitalism itself mystifies the exploitation that exists mm. under capitalism, this fetish form that it takes. And this is Marx working out like, why, if all of this is true about capitalism, do like people just not all rise up at once and just do the fucking thing, right? He has to spend the rest of his life trying to go back and understanding, understand all the different ways in which there's this counter tendency to the proletariat to rise up and come together. Uh, but, but all the same, the entire time, his entire life, and all of Engels' life, too, they were arguing for, against Bakunin and others who were saying we needed purely economic action in the trade unions, mm. he was arguing for, like, public, like, for um, basically um, contesting the state, you know, through elections and also through working class power outside of the, of the booth. Like, he saw a central place for political organizing where other people didn't. Whether he was right about that's an open open question. Yeah. You see what happened with the Second International. That's another thing we can interrogate. But um, you know, he thinks that what follows from his analysis is that political power seizing the state, using it for the workers' ends, is the way forward. Yeah. And so, if you believe that, then still to this day, a lot of things follow from that. Like you should be forming a communist party mm-hmm. if you want to be true to this 1848 document. 
then uh, you have to be a conscious communism. You have to be out there kind of being what later would be called the vanguard mm -hmm. of like the most advanced workers trying to tie all these different struggles together and fighting openly uh, for working class rule and communism. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end part one. Thank you so much for joining us, guest. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Sean. Sean. Yeah. Thank you, guest. <laughs> Very happy to be guesting on the Antifada podcast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a great project, guys. I'm really happy. Thank you. Thank you and I will thank be you. checking them out. So thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Of course, man. Thank you. <laughs>